I'm Sarah Kelleher, and this is Psych in the City, a podcast about sexuality, relationships, and health. One psychotherapist, me, gives you the sex and psych education you didn't get in social work school, or most likely anywhere. Hello, and welcome back to Psych in the City podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher, and I am very excited for today's episode. I have on two guests who are both part of the Equitable Care Certification Program, which is the first certification program for therapy providers to build competency in providing equitable care to sex workers. So what does equitable mental health and therapeutic care for sex workers mean and how are we doing it? You're about to find out. And two amazing guests are going to explain this all to us. Jenna Torres is a community advocate, published author, spoken word artist, entrepreneur, and above all, a proud mother to four beautiful children. She believes people have agency to make the best decisions possible in order to survive. Jenna defends them and works with communities to build realistic solutions to real-life problems like violence, poverty, and discrimination by using literary art to highlight key issues in her community. Her passion is in reproductive justice, comprehensive sexual education, social justice, human rights, and most notably sex worker advocacy. Her vision is to create spaces where education and healing are centered for BIPOC individuals, in addition to intentionally gathering resources to support the collective wellness and co-create art that reflect the community and their lived realities, including dreams of the future. Soleil She They is a licensed clinical social worker, ASEC certified sex therapist, and certified supervisor, consultant, group facilitator for educational and play spaces, and sex worker, DOM, full service, and digital. All of her work comes directly from an anti-oppression framework, dismantling systems and the traumas they perpetuate daily, challenging constructs of being which limit our access to self, and centering sexual selves as worthy of their fullest expression. Soleil also facilitates education in multiple spaces and modalities, including face-to-face, written, and digitally via phone, video, and VR. Soleil loves creating workshops for communities and therapists, joining the exploration of the clinical space with the role of eroticism and sensuality for the professional and the client. I'd like in each of you to introduce yourselves and maybe share a little bit about like who you are and what you do. So my name is Jenna Torres. I do lots of different things. I am a mom. I'm a poet. I am a sex worker organizer, activist. I also do work around reproductive justice, social justice. Um, I'm a Black woman, so that also plays a lot into my intersectionalities. Mostly my work is connecting creative art with storytelling, so therefore we can utilize our stories in a way that is beneficial to movement building um, and also about like destigmatizing our lived experiences, not only just in sex work, but also in um, healthcare settings and just making wellness accessible. So a lot of my work is talking about my lived experiences as a young mom, um, as somebody who's had multiple interfacing realities with the court system, with foster care, um, with the criminal justice system as a sex worker and how all of those things culminated into kind of the advocate I am now um, and how to just help people understand the 
differences from people who are engaging in sex work autonomously and those who are trafficked and how there is a spectrum of experience, <laughs> a spectrum of experiences around how people or have autonomy in based in doing the work that they do. So that's a lot of the work that I do. And that's how I came to interface with Equitable Care Collection. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to chat and have you. So I'm Soleil, formerly uh, Angie Gunn. Um, I am uh, a sex worker. I am a licensed clinical social worker, um, certified sex therapist, um, sex therapist supervisor. Um, and I am kinky and queer and genderqueer and non-monogamous um, and an overall weirdo when it comes to sex and really um, love trying to find strategies for people to be their most expansive self. And I think sex work has often been a strategy for me to do that as well as other people. Um, and I find the intersection between um, clinical spaces around sexuality, healing and integration to be in, in, intrinsically intertwined with sex work as one of the modalities, as one of the primary resources for folks getting access to expansion and pleasure and expression. Um, and so for me, the two have always been interconnected and intertwined. Um, and I always felt really connected to both. Um, and currently most of my work is in that intersection is the advocacy for um, sex workers who are becoming therapists, as well as for therapists who are also sex workers, um, as well as those who are needing to just learn more about the industry and how the industry is an important part of our human culture and a part of our world, um, and is a place where some of the most heinous oppression has happened um, in, in, uh, intergenerationally and historically. And um, yeah, so I'm really happy to be um, here with all of you today. Um, I was the original creator of Equitable Care Certification. Um, as a like small little brain child of mine when I had started a group practice um, in Portland and um, eventually merged it with Step Wellness and um, Raquel became the um, director of it because I'm really bad at executive functioning. <laughs> so I was like, please. Um, so Raquel took it over and, and helped finish it in a really beautiful way. Um, and it's been a really cool journey to see, you know, at one point we have over 50 other sex worker therapists who are aligned and who are collaborating um, as well as a bunch of sex workers in the community who are interested and supportive of the work and who are helping us add voices of other people to the conversation beyond just therapists. Um, so it's been a really yeah beautiful journey. You do a lot of advocacy work um, and community work. So how did you become involved with ECC? So I actually went through a program, the Sex Worker Giving Circle at Third Way Fund. And after completing the program, I was asked to get on the podcast with Raquel. And so it was really interesting about our intersectionalities of how, from a person who does community-based work, um, how it's hard to connect people to resources because they are not to be trusted with our community. Um, and also like the criminalization that Soleil just explained and just talked about is something that um, was a lot of the reasons why when I was working at Red Umbrella Project in New York in partnership with um, other health partners, that we really took our time to really think about how are we engaging with other organizations and other resources to support them. And so through my own personal experiences of t personally having terrible <laughs> interactions with um, therapists, especially disclosing that I was a sex worker, um, that's kind of where we connected. And then I was asked to um, join the curriculum for um, equitable care certification to explain my situation and my experiences as like a young person who is black, who has been a sex worker out of survival, like how those things show up. Um, and then also just my experiences on the organizing side of having to go into places for 
social workers or clinicians or practitioners or any of those like sorts of groups and really explain about the stigmatization that comes with um, talking about sex work and how the language that we use, the ways in which we ask questions, like intake forms, any of those things, how that would hinder somebody's ability to feel safe in their circumstances. So we did all of those courses through um, lived experiences. So at the time, Red Umbrella sadly no longer exists, but um, at the time that it did, we took our personal experiences, especially those that we crafted in writing workshops and went to these places and really just talked to the students and even other professionals about how to incorporate community-centered education um, and so that they would reduce the harm that they cause. And I would say that we had a really good outcome with that. And so even after Red Umbrella Project closed, I continued to use that model because I realized that when you are teaching or training and using like a really academic background, that sometimes it kind of goes over people's heads. But when you're basing your experience in like community experience, lived experiences, like when people are telling their own personal story, then it's more of an inquisitive conversation and people ask questions to gain better understanding versus making assumptions. In which why when I show up into places, I tell people that they can ask just about any question and I'm most likely 99% not going to be offended by it as long as it's not said with harm. Like as long as you're not trying to be funny, um, because I'm also from Brooklyn, so I can be hilarious. <laughs> as long as you're not trying to be funny, I am open to ask and answering just about any question. Is and if I don't have the answer, then I'll also let you know. So that's kind of how we got connected to um, ECC. So yeah, I, I want to just say thank you, Jenna, for your presence and participation. For us, it was really important that like it wasn't just Raquel and I talking about um, the, the or therapists creating the curriculum, but it was like we want voices of sex workers so that they hear many other experiences to validate this isn't just like quote-unquote jargon this is like I love the way that you said that Jenna this is like community-based education and understanding which is so key and changing the dialogue for therapists that like we don't we, we don't want to be staying in this professional hierarchy we want we want to be integrating into communities that we're trying to help but if we're not in those communities and we're not spending time with those with the, with those people if we're not a part of it we're not helping absolutely I've found similar resistance. I mean, I worked in a very medical setting for a few years and we did a panel. I spearheaded a panel. Sex workers came on and shared their experiences and the hospital didn't want to promote it on our interface. You know, they were like, they thought it was too sexual quote. Um, and the having people sharing their personal ways that they have been harmed and have not sought care because of the harm that was done to them in a medical setting, even like specifically surrounding like language and like the way providers responded um, when they answered a question that they had asked, like it was a huge barrier. And I really think that having people share their stories like helped to bridge some of the gaps for some of the medical providers. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a lot of resistance to it, especially because we worked in a sexual health clinic, but many of the medical providers who were like podiatrists or like worked in other areas, they, because it was related to sex workers, they automatically associated it with like sexual health clinic and how they didn't need to hear about this information because they didn't work. They weren't a sex therapist. They weren't a sexual health clinic provider. They were 
something that had nothing to do with one another. But it, once it was framed as like, no, this is a group of people that you are serving that have particular needs. Like, I do think it helped a little bit um, in terms of bridging that that gap. So Jenna, can you tell us about maybe some of the experiences that you've had um, either organizing or personally when trying to seek mental health care and so, so like obviously you too, um, but about like, what are the barriers that have, that you've seen, that you've experienced, that you found when trying to get care or support related to identity? Oh, I would definitely say the most notable instance I have ever had dealing with therapists was um, at Kaiser, which was already a really bad <laughs> uh, incident anyway, because I was seeking care. Um, and at the time I had just had a miscarriage. And so I, Kaiser was like helpful because all the things were in one building. So ideally you're like, oh yeah, yeah you don't have to go to a million to five places. But also like the level of care was just, not there and that could be because I like live in Georgia so I think environment also has an issue with like understanding how people show up as whole human beings um so I was having a conversation with a psychiatrist and I was there because I was trying to get medication for my ADHD and they told me actually I'm not facing ADHD I don't have that I have high functioning anxiety and I was like I don't know what you think this is but that is not what it is um but they just asked me like some of the reasons why I felt like I had ADHD like what led to it what are some of like my life experiences so I disclosed that I do sex worker advocacy like a lot of my job is paying attention to details and really having to be careful because of like just being aware of my surroundings and being aware of like who is entering the building and having community practice and so um the psychiatrist at the time was like what what is what is sex work so I spent time talking what is sex work what is sex work oh okay and so I spent time talking about what is sex work and um how we most people do not use the term prostitution um and how that's a legal term and most people who are engaging in sex work don't actually call themselves a prostitute so just explaining like all of the, like, as if I was talking to somebody who has never engaged with the community before. Mm. And so um, I spent like an hour discussing this about why I'm not trafficked, why this is sex work, why it was autonomous, why there was a spectrum of choice, even though it was subjective choice, because yes, my experiences in the sex industry were survival based, meaning if I had equal to or, or better opportunity than doing sex work, I probably wouldn't have chose sex work. But that was a choice that I made. It was not prompted by another human being that my choice was prompted by capitalism, was prompted by the fact that I have children to take care of, that there was lack of resources. Um, and it wasn't being influenced by a specific person making me do sex work. And so by the end of it, I did not get my prescription for my ADHD. Um, he would not diagnose me with uh, ADHD, even though I had been diagnosed in previous settings. Um, and you were already and on medication. I was already on medication, but in a different state. So yeah. they were like, yeah, no, I think they misdiagnosed you. So just trying to get like proper <laughs> care in Georgia. Um, and then just having conversations about like why I'm actually not a victim of human trafficking. And 
understanding that there is a spectrum of experiences that can be considered to be coarse or or like coercion in the practice but me personally that's not how I identify um and so just explaining like how really harmful it is to people who are actually being trafficked and utilizing my scenario is not a way to prevent trafficking. The only way to prevent trafficking is by providing resources to people and so that they can have actual levels of resources and care. Um, And so, yeah, so that was just one of my very clear instances where I'm like, okay, I will never tell another therapist that I'm a sex worker or that I have done sex work advocacy. Like that is never going to be another conversation because I spent $45 for that session, did not get what I needed. Um, And instead I got grilled a million ways to Friday about how, why am I not a human trafficking survivor? Um, And so I felt like in that moment, what I do recognize is that Uh, my individual care cannot be a place where I do advocacy for my community. Like it has to be in a different setting. Like I can come as like an advocate, as a uh, consultant, as anything else that's outside of my personal time. Um, But I can't utilize that time to inform or educate anybody because then I'm actually not going to get the things that I need. Mm. Yeah. totally. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Oh, and, and just basically like the therapist, the, the therapists, the doctors, the medical systems, like need to be getting their own training. Like it's never a, a client's job to teach us, to teach the providers how to do our work and how to understand the complexity of being. And, um, and like, it just speaks like how prevalent like horophobia and um, like patriarchal misogyny is in medical spaces. And like, they like to believe it's not true, but like, it's cool if you if you want to exploit yourself working for them. <laughs> if you're a nurse, if you're a therapist, if you're a doctor, you can work you know, 70 hours a week and you can get paid like shit and like, and then it's okay that way. But if you want to like sell your body, um, it's not okay. And like, it's, it's this like different relationship to what work is okay. And to what being is okay, but it's, it's, it's all the same survival under capitalism. And that was the earlier term that I was trying to say, <laughs> I can't remember the word, mm-hmm. but yeah, the yeah. scale of exploitation is very real right. because people yeah. have different experiences and through my work, yeah. There's a lot of people who've experienced both ends of the spectrum, but would not consider right. themselves to be a human trafficking victim totally. or survivor. Um, so I just, I think that um, in those settings, allowing what would have been helpful would have been client-led engagement. Like That's I told you I was a human trafficking survivor. I told you I made a conscious choice, choice to do right. sex work. And therefore that should have been the end of discussion. It shouldn't have been anything right. other than like, I hear you, I affirm you, I understand. Even if you don't understand, maybe that's the time that you can take to go do something right. productive and like educate yourself on why people don't use that, uh, prostitution as a term. And maybe they do. Um, but me personally, just respecting my boundaries and my education and my level of experience of the fact that I just told you like, no, I'm a person who does sex work. It's not necessarily who I am all of the time is a means for me to survive. And I'm here because I have ADHD and I would like to focus on my meetings. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, like this appointment has nothing to do with, and then I feel like there's a backlash too. Like when I was working in a hospital setting um, and working in a community-based clinic that then on the other side, there would be real consequence and punishment when someone would share something Um and then people would be flabbergasted why 
clients wouldn't come in and share things with us or we would find out a while later. And it's like, because they don't feel safe and because when they do share things, it is either used against them in an egregious way, such as calling the police or getting ACS involved in their life in a way that is not necessary. And then, so it's like, why are you shocked? No one, there was one time where a client had said, when you go to the doctors, are you asked these questions? And I remember some, like another person that I worked with was like, it just like a light went off for them. And they were like, no, I've never been asked any of the questions that I ask you. Cause we were given these forms of like, this is what you ask people. This is how it goes. And it was so punitive, the whole experience for the client. And when, and then the doctors would be so upset when a client lied to them or wouldn't share something with them. And it's like, why do you think that's happening though? Go one step further. And why is that happening? What are we doing to create a space where people feel safe to share their real experiences of what's going on? Oh, I was just saying that like that's therapist is like one small part of it. But I remember being in foster care and literally being getting sick I had like a a UTI that was like a really bad infection because I didn't know I had it and them telling my foster mother that I was doing sex work and um you know it was just like a real combination thankfully I was already exiting foster care I was already like 18 at that point um but I remember like the the fallout from that was like she wouldn't let me wash my clothes in her washing machine like I would have to go to a laundry machine because She's like, I don't know what you've been doing and I don't want it in like germs. I don't want that. And so like people don't even think it's like maybe the small things for other folks. But for me as a foster care child, like now I have to like take my clothes to a laundromat to then go wash them. And it's not just me. I have children. So like all of the circumstances where I think people want to help, I think the the feeling of wanting to help is one thing, but actually knowing how to do client-led help or client-led resources is another thing. Like it can't come from a point of like morality of like what I feel is just and right in my world is not actual help. And so I think there is a conversation of like, how do we bridge like people's personal feelings, which should, I personally think should never be (laughs) in a medical facility. I don't feel like you should ever personally be led to do anything for me. Um, and there's a difference between what I'm asking for you to do and what you have been taught to do based off what I'm asking. Um, and then also that could be problematic because depending on what you've been taught, (laughs) so it's both and. Right. But it it reminds me of like the like white saverism shit in like medical spaces, just kind of like, I'm going to rescue you. Like as soon as I know there's something like about you, that's like, um, that, and I see this with therapists all the time when I do supervision or trainings, these therapists have this idea of like, we're here to help the world. And it's like, bitch, like this sex worker probably could help you with some tips, with some things. And like your perception that like, because you have this degree and this training, like I can't tell you how many therapists I meet that are so mentally ill and so diff- struggling with their own life, their own well-being, their own sense of self, their own sexuality. And I'm like, girl, you need some support too. And like your belief that because you have this degree that you're therefore like able to like judge or perceive how someone else's like life is or like, like project some morality into the space like those are kind of like two problems I see in the therapy space but that we are really addressing in the ECC curriculum is you know we're not here to rescue anybody and we're not and we're not better than sex workers we're not more professional than they are we're not different than they are we are different kinds of healers but sex workers are healers too and they're doing the same kind of work in really different ways and we're all just trying to survive and support each other um and the other thought I had when you were showing that Jenna was um 
the idea that like what I saw a lot with therapists in terms of harm um, is therapists who would start to hear a trauma story from a sex worker and they get so fucking like turned on. I don't can't think of a better word than this, Sarah. Do you know a better word for this? But it's almost like this, like they fetishize the trauma and they and then they get excited about it. They're like, oh, and then what happened? Oh, tell me. Oh my, and there's like they're so shocked by this like human story of pain that they just like want all the details. And then they and then they then they what I, I've heard this from so many clients, the therapist would then say, Oh, I'm sorry, it's beyond my scope. I can't help you. After this person just like told their whole story and like shared all of this trauma, and they just like this therapist like just got off on like, oh, I this this person was so damaged and harmed and I, I can't believe it. And oh, I can't work with you now. Um, which is like so unethical and so harmful to this person. And it's like, we're not here to, um, this is not like a primetime movie series where we're excited to like a true time we're hearing somebody's life. This is like a human being that we're trying to go on a journey with to support. And like, how do we help therapists move out of that space of, um, of both like <laughs> eroticism to the trauma, but also their inability to see how they can actually be a supportive resource. And I think that shows up in the therapeutic room because it's a real example of real life. You know, it's like, ooh, tell me like, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you as a sex worker? Or tell me like the craziest client that you've had or something. And then it's like, oh, but also I would never, you know? So it's like this dual yeah, of like fetishizing while also thinking that it's separate and different from you and from what you're doing or the work that you do as a therapist. Like, I think that's a real, I think that's how we treat sex work right. in general in larger society. And so it makes sense that right. therapists then are right. promoting that same like thought of like, oh no, like, oh, wow, that's so like sexy and cool. And like, ooh, like tell me your juicy stories. And also uh, I'm actually not equipped. Like this is too much for me. And it's like, so then where, yeah. what, what do people, you know, like that's not fair um, and not real, you know? And harmful to people. What's interesting about that point is that, um, so two things. One, when I was working at Red Umbrella Project, we actually have a documentary called The Red Umbrella Diaries. And when we were showing it, um, we had a Q&A at the end of it. And I remember somebody asking the, like saying to the cast, that's the most unsexiest thing that I've ever watched. And I think they came to think about, like they were going to come and share all their stories about clients, but it really wasn't. It was about like regular life as a sex worker, about how to navigate your identities and how to show up and um you know live life as a sex worker and so that to me was like the first hint that people don't really understand that sex work is just like acting it's just like I'm not who I play in the mute the movies when I come out and then the other part of it is like I was I've often been asked what is the most traumatic thing that has happened to me as a sex worker and my response has always been the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to me as a sex worker was definitely nothing to do with sex work. Like, <laughs> right. regular nine to five it's jobs. Like, it's like this conversation. So traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, nine to five jobs have been so traumatic. The same organization that I just talked about, one of our interim directors threw a mug at me, but who was not a person of color, who was not a Black person, who was a cisgendered white man because I didn't answer an email. That was the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to me. Like, sex work is it's like I don't want to say that's occupational harm like you know what you're kind of stepping into and how to like protect yourself and how to like kind of shield yourself from the things that could potentially go wrong but you also understand what could go wrong I never in my life 
God, I would walk into an office and somebody would chuck a mug at me and then right. lie to my board of directors because I'm a black woman and say that I was the aggressor. Right. Never in my life would I think that happened. So for me as a sex worker, my right. thing, like I can anticipate the harm that might happen, but I also have like my own set of rules as a sex worker. Like I'm not going to work totally. while I'm inebriated. I'm not going to see certain types of clients at certain types of days. Like I already have the things based off my experience of how to keep myself oh, safe in that right. scenario. But at a nine to five job where it's like, I'm actually trying to implement change in the same community that I come from is was so jarring, so caught off guard to the point where if it wasn't for Women's Foundation and sending me to like this transformative healing retreat thing, I probably would not have continued to do organizing. So it took therapist it took uh the right therapist it took um healing circles it took community to even right. get me out of the mind frame of the harm that was created right. because they felt like they had privilege over my time in in a right. space right. that wasn't theirs so right. that whole idea like that sex workers don't have a life outside of their clients that don't have a life outside of the image that they portray, portray online is like the most harmful <laughs> narrative that people can have because for some people sex work is all that they do that is who they are and that's fine but that is not 99% of the people who do this work so right. you know I just I think that uh that analogy or that that thought process of like that's it we just here and that's all we are that's all the stories that we have I mean I have great client stories but it definitely is not pertaining to like our sex like the great client stories I have is like when a massage, somebody came and gave me a beautiful massage. He tipped me well. And then he sent me on my way. That was the best client I ever had. Right. <laughs> I tell yeah. you about that. There's like, that's unsexy. Yeah, of course it is. Totally. <laughs> so. And no, totally. And I think yeah. there is often, I think people, therapists, let's say handle discomfort different ways. It's either like only talking about the work or that thing and then or completely ignoring it right and I've heard that too in terms of experience where like a therapist doesn't know either doesn't have the resources doesn't know how to hasn't done their own research doesn't know how to talk about sex work or like incorporate that into their therapeutic work or they over talk about it and attribute everything to go back to that and that and that and that and it's like neither is helpful um, because people are coming hopefully to share their whole self and whole experience and whole personhood. And it's like, it's just, I think there's a lot of tools that need to be taught to therapists um, regarding that. So, so tell me a little bit about like, what has the process been to develop the curriculum? Like, how did you choose the topics? I mean, there's so many there's so many layers that you could have chosen. Yeah. And so like, how did, how was that process? Like, what did that look like? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, as Jenna's already mentioned, like a big part of it was engaging with other, with community members. And so I was talking about like, what do we want to talk about? What's important to say? Um, how do we want to tell the stories that are needed to be told? And so what we did was we have, we have, we had five um, beautiful sex workers who came. I didn't get to be there, um, but y'all came and had um, a sessions where they recorded all of the questions for all of the courses together. And then we're integrating all of the videos of those responses into all of the courses. Um, and the topics were selected based on um, input from sex workers, as well as from the community of coalition members, which is a community of therapists, sex workers, 
folks who are aligned um, and we all spent a lot of time. We all just donated our time and you were a part of it, Sarah, um, donated our time for, you know, two years to figure out how to get this done and, and what we needed to talk about. And, um, and we've had sex workers along the process as well as, you know, myself and Raquel who are sex workers, um, but we, we've had other sex workers who are not therapists along reading it and supporting us along the way to make sure that we're not missing anything. Because um, we just named that like, we're, we are always gonna be coming from a certain lens when we try to create these kinds of things. And we need to make sure that like, what I'm trying to communicate to a therapist, I'm still gonna try to like um, make it digestible to them. And sometimes what's di what, what's truth is not always digestible. And so there's, we're always like walking that fine line, right? <laughs> like, what do they need to fucking hear to like get the point um, while still it being approachable enough that they're gonna learn and integrate and hopefully take it to their communities and to their colleagues. Um, and so the, you know, the topics range from um, anti-oppression work to dealing with sex work and families to dealing with um, mental health and sex work to um, specific clinical strategies um, to just kind of general who are sex workers and how do we engage with them. Jenna, in your community work and working with within advocacy, what are some of the biggest barriers that you find with teaching? Um, I think some of my biggest like barriers that I have faced is um, one, the process of getting sex workers into the rooms to tell their stories. Mm. Um, so for us, people were not willing to come to anything that we were um, hosting if they weren't receiving a stipend, which is fair because a lot of people that we were organizing with our street-based workers, our survival-based workers, um, and they could be getting a client during that time. So I definitely understood that was a big barrier for just having people present to even have that conversation. Um, and also explaining to universities, particularly universities, why it's important to fund and support and stipend and, um, you know, to give people honorariums for them even coming because they are coming from a lived experience, meaning currently, right now, as we speak, they are engaging in this way and um, them teaching you provides absolutely nothing. <laughs> so um, that was one of the big barriers. Like people, they didn't want to pay us. They didn't want to support us. Like it was a lot of work that we went into, like just merely having folks show up. And even when it came to grant folks, like explaining to them why it was important for them to have money in our budget for us to be able to pay folks to show up to our writing workshops and do advocacy. Um, because without them, what, who was going to do it? Um, the recipient part of it was, um, I definitely think the moral standpoint was very hard for some people, especially depending on the university that we went to, depending on the teaching school we went to, depending on who was asking us to do the work, um, what kinds of classes, they had very different standpoints on what morality looked like. Um, so a lot of the pushback we got to was like, well, why you didn't choose any other job or why did you like, why? was a big question and so really having to be internally strong to explain why I made a choice is something that I'm able to do um but there's some of the people in our collective who are still very much in their lived experiences and don't have that um sense of of detachment from their experiences who can't explain why um and so really trying to be the um the kind of shield 
where I'm willing to put my experiences and my expertise and my thoughts on the line so that other people can have less engagement and show share what they needed or could feel comfortable sharing, but still giving people a full spectrum of experience is something that I found worked best. But definitely the like preconceived notions. I think my favorite activity I've ever done with therapists, social workers, um, and clinicians were we had post-its with a bunch of different words on them. So like BDSM, prostitute, sex worker, um, stripper, like what is red umbrella? Like all of those type of terms. And people were able to like anonymously put whatever sticky notes, how they felt about it, questions they had about it, um, feelings they had about it. And we kind of started off of our um, teaching that way so that we already know what kind of preconceived notions that people are coming into the room with and kind of debunking that. Like, demystifying sex work um and really approaching it from like a labor rights standpoint a health standpoint like there's a lot of different ways in which people show up as sex workers and how they practice sex work that um really fits into a lot of different categories of organizing for me i think it was definitely more labor rights related um, because I'm a young person at the time. I was a young person who had three children, just graduated high school, and 725 an hour was definitely not supporting me and my three kids. So I did this because this was the most equitable choice that I could make for me right. to support my children, go to school, and not be worried. Um, but there's some folks who actually have like um who take time to develop their skills to deal with people to actually have like therapeutic sex sessions or um, what it's like to work, especially with folks who are disabled, who don't have access to certain types of pleasure. Like they really talk with passion about what it's like to work in certain communities and serve certain communities as a provider. Um, and so undoing that, um, bridge for people to see the experience as human, as like dignified, as things that are not like this, whatever they tell you on these crazy shows and books, like really just demystifying what it is we do as providers was definitely um, overcoming the barrier so that people can listen. Um, So through that process, I think, um, you know, just really showing up as we can was the help that to break down the barrier, but the barriers definitely were like preconceived notions were like things that they've watched, things that they heard, 50 Shades of Grey, all the things that, um, you know, that aid into miscommunication, misunderstanding, and just not having access to community because we got better things to do to be sitting in your, your classroom. So all of that. So like, have there been a lot of bureaucratic barriers? Um, was that in, was that like a difficult thing for the team to, to navigate? Yeah, I mean, so um, before we started ACC, I, I'd already been trying to figure out how to give therapists CEs by having different people teach courses. Because a lot of the um, the credentialing organizations that give certificate sort of certification credits to therapists are usually pretty strict around like who can give credits, and it usually has to be a licensed therapist with certain experience, with certain training, blah blah blah. And for me, I was like, we don't need to hear more from the PhDs. Like, we don't need we ha- we have too much of that already, and what we need yeah. is like community-based training taught by everybody taught including voices from all different people including input 
Um, and so um, luckily, ASECT, the um, Sex Therapy Association, um, does allow other folks to teach as long as it's supervised by a certified sex therapist. And so we were able to get the organizational certification through ASECT, and then I can supervise to have anybody else teach it. Um, and so there's been a little bit of difficulty with ASECT, um, just because it, it still is a governing body that is navigating how it can relate to touch providers within its sex therapy organization. Um, but but I'm, as of right now, I'm grateful that they have supported, they've supported this and are, are, we're getting um, some good feedback. Um, the ASEC conference happened last week, this week, uh, last week. And um, one of the uh, members of the coalition handed out our stickers and talked a little bit about our work um, and supported us in that space. And it was a really beautiful opportunity to, to kind of do some coalition building with other members within ASECT. Um, so I think despite the, uh, we still are very um, unsupported in most therapist spaces. Um, sex, the sex therapy space is the one that we're having a little bit of inroads with, um, but we haven't had any traction yet in terms of other therapy, therapy bodies or certifying boards or organizations supporting the work or um, seeking us to train for them or seeking us to, um, send their members to our certification. So that's really, that's one of the asks that we would have from the, from the podcast and from anybody who's listening um, is, you know, are you a therapist that has an organization um, or a group practice or a certifying body or a board that you work with that wants us to come and we can do one-off teaching, we can do the whole certification. Uh, we also can sell the certification um, for access to certain organizations in the future. So we're really open to how we get this out to everybody, but we want to get it to as many people as possible and want therapists to believe that it's important for every single therapist to understand this because it is possible that every client you have has or has knows somebody who's doing sex work. How ha So the response from the sex therapy community has been a little bit more receptive than the overall right. therapeutic community. Why do you think there is, why do you think that is? And why do you think therapists currently don't, uh, don't feel it necessary or are not seeing the necessity in having this information? I mean, I think, so, I think sex therapists tend to be a little bit more um, progressive when it comes to just like how they relate to the work, but there's still generally this, this perception that um, just being direct, I think from what I hear from people, it's like, they see this as, they see sex work as oh, that's an illegal thing that some people do on the street. Like that's the biggest, and, and why would we need to understand that? People just shouldn't be doing that. That's not good for their mental health. So we should be, we, don't, we shouldn't have to learn about that. It's like, it's like um, a therapist learning about other type of what they perceive as like criminal behavior. So for them, it's like, that just should be something, either, either someone's forced into it or they're choosing it and it's illegal. So there's not a like, oh, this is a, this is a viable identity trait that someone would be engaging in and would relate to and would draw strength from and power from and connection from like, a therapist are always surprised when I tell them that, that sex workers' primary community and support system and like um, life livelihood is other sex workers who provide mutual aid and who care for each other and who always show up for each other no matter what. It's never clients. It's never um, you know formal providers in the community. It's never families. Um, and and the belief that like it is actually a really meaningful both community as well as identity trait that people want to hold on to. Not a thing that that there's always shame or stigma around um, for everybody. Um, and for those who do have that shame or stigma, they still might want support with how they relate to that identity in that community um, as a bigger part of themselves than just this thing that they're trying to get away from, right? So, you know, if we're all victims of trafficking, um, then it's just, then it, then, it, then it perpetuates this savior mentality of like, oh, we're gonna, we're, we don't have to learn about your identity. We're just gonna save you and then take care of you and hold you like a kitten. <laughs> and it's like, no, we are none of those things. Um, we are stronger than you are in most cases. And we are, you know, learning how to care for ourselves and our own mental health through the work and through the community. 
don't know, do you agree with that, Jenna, in terms of that perception? I definitely think that's the truth. Um, I think a lot of people is like either you are a victim or you're a criminal. There's no in between. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and even if that had been the case, even if that is the case for some people, then you're also neglecting the fact that you have to interact with them. And if you are taking the oath to do no harm, which you are creating harm by not having the tools by facilitating those conversations, because what if people come in and don't feel safe, then you will never know if they're trafficked. You will never know if they're a sex worker because you actually have not created the lane to have that conversation. And then overall, I think parts of it is that sex workers still need care, it, even if it's not about sex work. Like, right? It, people are people are people outside of sex work. And um, when I get into spaces, I always explain that like what I'm actually talking about is like very like one percent sex work, and the rest of the ninety nine percent of what I'm talking about is like access to resources, is like right. lived experiences, of jobs, is caring for my children is like not having um community outside of my sex worker community which is absolutely true like I would say 95% of the people I engage with on a daily basis and hourly basis are other people who are sex workers in our community whether they're former or current and so um yeah I would definitely agree that people is very black and white um and the thing that I like to come into spaces and tell like is actually very gray like it's those experiences are very great it's not black and white and I was thinking the related statement is that you're uh when you're not able to hold the identity of sex work then you miss all of the related trauma and harm and um life experiences that are coming with that so like when there's when there's assaults happening when there's difficulty in dating when there's difficulty in family like all the other it, it, ha- it is it is a vector for all these other parts of identity and self that are impacted and you and then you miss all this other parts of this person that you can't they can't talk about because you, they can't talk about this 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 single point that it's all related to um so it's it's such a big factor in everyone's um in, in everyone needs to have that support and, and resources yeah even the point of disclosure like i mm-hmm. explained to like my community members especially people who are sex workers and feel very comfortable talking to their partners that they are sex worker while they're current referring like I don't I tell my partners I have been a sex worker in my life because obviously you can google my name and it will show up so like I've told them I have been a sex worker in life but there's been a lot of relationships I were currently a sex worker in and I never felt safe enough to explain that identity so not being able to like go anywhere else (laughs) and also talk about like that how that interferes in a lot of ways of building relationships building bonds with people especially when you can't be honest about the ways in which you support yourself and your family um because you already know there's a miscommunication or misunderstanding Mm -hmm. about what sex work actually is and for me it is a job I clock in I clock out of I don't I don't care about nothing that anybody else who ain't paying me doing after the fact um and so like really explaining that there's a lot of duality within a sex worker's mind of like how they show up for work and how they show up in other spaces. And for mental health, that's like you being 50 people in one of like, how do I show up in each space? And what are the things that I can and cannot say and the things that I can and cannot be in a lot of places in the compartmentalizing of that takes a toll when there isn't um, an actual mechanism for it. So 
outside I just re started receiving um therapy sessions which I also told them about ECC and they're super excited um so mm -hmm. um I just started receiving like actual affirming care yes. in my therapy sessions where we have those conversations but prior prior to that it was really hard navigating multiple lives because it's it like I couldn't understand why I couldn't be bonded to my partner or I couldn't understand why anytime I interact I couldn't even have friends because I was like what y'all giving me like my time is valuable and so not being able to segment like there's a time to be a sex worker there's a time to like work there's a time to like have friendship that's platonic there's a time to be in a relationship that's um not platonic and not sex work so it's, it took a long time for me to to re recognize those things and it wasn't until I had affirming care where we started to put the pieces together like oh like here's the lines of like what you can have a conversation about to make it more mm -hmm. accessible so I definitely think that um yeah there's a whole spectrum of person that you miss when you only either only focus on sex work or discard sex work as a whole and I think what can happen too is when a person feels like a negative or stigmatized energy from a medical or mental health provider, then the onus becomes on that person to like either not share some of the negative aspects of the work or like only speak about the positive to like not reaffirm this person's narrative. And then it's like, you're not getting real care because you have to edit and like you have to, you know, like pretend um, and without then because you have this fear that if you share something like share about real aspects of the work that then this, you know, the therapist is going to be like, oh, see, that's why you should you know, maybe you should think about leaving or maybe you shouldn't do this or maybe you shouldn't do that when it's like, no, we can just talk about these experience and hold space for the spectrum of experience without asking, you know, anyone to do anything about it and just acknowledge that it's happening, right? Like with any job, there's going to be a spectrum of experience um, and how to talk about the specifics of sex work without generalizing it. Yet also it is like having a job in general, like in many ways, like it's labor, you know, um, and how do we talk about the nuances of that? And I think that's what's missed too when you're when people aren't trained um like when providers aren't trained I like both those points so much <laughs> so is this the first certification program like this in existence it is and I think of, of all the certifications that I know that exist too it's the first that is created by sex workers so for sex workers by sex workers including their voices their stories um and um, and the other kind of difference that we're doing we're, that we've added to this course compared to most other courses is everyone who goes to the course is also going to get sex workers as that we're going to vet them to see sex work clients at the end. So we're going to provide supervision and support for them to do. Um, uh, I need to check on the check on the, the amount, but I think it's 12 sessions um, or three months of three months of sessions with a sex worker. And we're going to be supervising them and supporting them through it. And they'll be providing free services for those sex workers. So we're able to give a lot more sex workers free services and also vetting that they are people who've been trained and who know what they're doing. And then we're going to be checking into the sex, sex workers along the way. Are they doing a good job? What's your feedback? Um, and with the person, hey, what are your needs? What's coming up for you? So um, not only is it um, the training and the, the development piece, but also it's a long-term vetting that we're going to do this well. 
and then creating a database of providers who are sex work friendly that we can be supporting um, and expanding the training to more people too. Yeah, and also at the end of it, knowing that this is not a forever certification, it's not like you go through it once and that's it. If you want to remain with the certification, then I think it's every three years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Um, we're doing renewals. Yeah, they have to do renewals. So I think that should be a case in a lot of other professions that they don't do renewals. Like I don't feel like, for instance, police should be police forever. I feel like they definitely need to have check-ins because I think that's how a lot of the harm happens. And there's a lot of people who face um, compassion fatigue and um, are not able to fully show up for their jobs because they've, it is, being a therapist is holding a lot. And so I definitely feel like there should be a place where people need to be reevaluated if they're still in a place where they can continue to serve um, sex workers in a way that they intend to. Um, So I'm just really glad about the part that they have to (laughs) renew every couple of years. What has been in your advocacy and like community work and even through your like personal experiences, like what has been the biggest thing you've learned in terms of like how to bridge the gaps um, as well as like how to like what gets people to listen? I, I don't and I know that's such like a large on large question, but I think like sex workers have been screaming for so long about like, Hey, this is, these are important. This is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to see. Like they're always on the cusp of sort of social and like political, you know, even like with tech changes, like many people were saying like, Hey, this is going to affect, this is how it's going to affect people. And so like, what, how do we continue to get people to care and understand also realizing the fact that that is really should not be on sex workers to do that labor um and recognizing that but like what has helped in terms of getting people to understand like hey like this need you need to like shape up you know what I mean like you need to like I don't know if that makes sense yeah I definitely love being the epitome of I told you so so maybe that's just like my own toxic trait (laughs) (laughs) but in like in realness I think part of it is one connecting sex work to a lot of other larger movements. So the biggest thing that I face in the South has been connecting sex work to reproductive justice because a lot of people do not recognize that sex workers need reproductive justice just like anybody else. Um, And so when they talk about like removing the access to abortion or removing access to birth control or removing access to plan B, um, even at some point they told us that the, for the, um, internal condoms, you needed a prescription mm. for you to get them. Like we weren't even able to get them to give them out for free because people needed a prescription for it. Um, so even having a conversation about like how to protect people's whole health has been ways in which we have talked about sex work and included sex workers in those climates, um, in New York, at a time where there was a lot of regulations going on around the nail salons, I know that we introduced sex work as a uh, labor rights issue also in that part. Massage parlors were another way that we talked about sex work. So really just unfortunately having to attach to larger movements to include sex worker voices in them has been like a way for people to listen. But for me personally, art has been the biggest way for me Mm -hmm. to get people to listen to my experiences as a person who has been in the industry, as somebody who is an advocate. Um, 
and really just doing storytelling because it makes it more human. It's not mm-hmm. some movie that you saw or witnessed or some book that somebody w- wrote from like a fantasy perspective or a trauma response or trying to get people to be scared of human trafficking. Like it's actual lived experiences and understanding that like trafficking actually happens very regularly and very commonly in your face. And a lot of people don't even recognize it. So you're talking about people who are being on boarded on planes. I had a a person who came and was like, oh my God, they're trafficking people through Delta. And I was like, they're trafficking people through the bus station in Atlanta. I'm confused as to like, you think people ain't going to get on this bus? Like I just... Mm -hmm. You know, so really just making people understand. I think it was around the Super Bowl in Atlanta when we were having those conversations because Super Bowl is always a big sting operation. So um, just really getting people to have like real tangible conversations. And when when I do art, I can't speak for other people. When I do art, it's not a conversation. I said what I said on this stage and you are listening because you're here for art. So you don't get to have a discussion or a back and forth with me. You have to just sit in what you heard. Um, So I think parts of it is like creating more storytelling opportunities, getting people to experience and tell their stories if they feel comfortable to, empowering people to um, tell their stories when they feel comfortable. And then the other part of it is really just utilizing the movements that are already having traction. Like for us in the South is reproductive rights. For us in the South, it's about getting tested and knowing your status, which we do regularly anyway. So how can we make people in the industry interface with um, resources that already have a large voice in process? So that kind of helps getting people to listen. And then also, I'm a really big fan of like, if you do not hear, you must feel. And so when things were happening with Rent Boy, when things were happening with um, Backpage and Craigslist and Sesta Fosta, and people were like, well, great, we're not going to have to worry about um, about online trafficking. However, what they didn't realize was people's accounts were getting shut down. People's like, like couldn't do PayPal or, you know, Cash App or any of the other things that were, they were getting implant in, they were getting hindered because of the things that were impacting sex workers or or designed to protect sex workers so you also as regular consumers had the bearing of the the end of that so I like the fact that um you know even after we said things and we tried to show community like we actually see it first people didn't take our word for it and then they're like oh my god how do we fix this and we're like oh the why are you looking at me for? You want me to fix it? No, we told you. Um, and so I think definitely after the last couple of years of like random shutdowns around people having issues with getting PayPal accounts and all the other things that happen, I feel like people are more inclined to listen to sex workers because they know it hits us first, whether they do something about it or not. But I do think people are paying attention a little bit more. How is the curriculum and the program like being shared and like promoted and how have you been, how have we, what can we do to get therapists and mental health providers to also understand how important this knowledge is? I'm open to ideas. Anybody listening? Yeah, give us some fucking ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's challenging, right? Because we, we've mostly been doing social media, sharing in our network, sharing in our um, reposting on therapist um, listservs, um, sharing with our own communities. But I mean, really, I think one of the challenges with 
the reasons why folks don't see this as valuable is also the reason why it's hard to break in to talk about it being valuable is because there's kind of this good old boys club of like professionalism and kind of like um, exclusionary, like like to be able to like present at a conference, it takes a bunch of steps and a bunch of money and, and to be able to like go in, um, go into a certain kind of professional space to pitch the idea, you need to have a certain kind of connection and a certain reputation and a certain, and so there's this kind of constantly like where we hit walls too around because we're the most radical of the therapist bunch. Um, we are not the most wanted in those spaces and we're not the most um, desirable in those spaces. So, you know, we'll get denied for when we submit conference presentations or we'll get, um, we will struggle with um, other folks even wanting to share our content or share that it's useful or share our stories or repost our things. Whereas like, you know, every kind of new age woke therapist posting about, you know, <laughs> cut off your family and, and, and denounce your identity is like, uh, you know, gets these reposts and these reshares and it's like kind of like, but like we're in a space where we're we're liberation centric and, and, it, and we hit some of the same walls that a lot of other anti-oppressive movements hit um, because we are looking at dismantling systems of oppression in the therapy space and we're challenging you know in our in our course we're talking about why the DSM is is, is problematic we're talking about mandatory reporting as a problem and as um, not a effective and um, human centered strategy you know we're talking we're, we're challenging a lot of the systems that are um, that are so core to who a therapist thinks they are and so i think you know in some ways that um we need that we need the really radical i, I think the term radical also has become kind of problematic now i need i need a new a new fucking word um but we need we need the therapists who are on the level you know who care about anti-oppressive work and who actually like are aware of the impact of um misogyny and of racism and of um intergener intergenerational trauma and those folks to be like Hey y'all, this is an important thing too. And, and keeping their license is sometimes more important to people than doing good work. And I think I always want to challenge folks to like, if you have to sacrifice your your own values, your own support for communities and identities that you support, um, your own kind of essence in the work around what you believe to keep a license, then it's not, not a license I want to have. And it's not, not a license that we want to be keeping. And at times like the boards, like <clears throat> I remember this vividly, I attended a supervisory training with um, AMFT um, the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. I did their supervisory certification um, and then they denied me access <clears throat> after doing their certification. But I did their whole program and the the instructor was racist. It was completely like, it was consistently experiencing racism on other members of the program and, and through like the content we were reading um, was explicit. And I, and I reported it, I talked, to, I talked to them about it. I reported it to the company um, and they're still teaching. Like it, it has not changed. They're, still, they're teaching supervisors how to supervise other therapists. And so, you know, if we can't, if we can't dismantle oppression at the like level of instruction, um, how are we changing the training and the well-being of the actual providers? And these are like new students coming in who are trying to learn how to do this work. Many of them, um, I really love the the twenty-year-olds who are coming into this work who are like, they don't give a fuck, and they're much more willing to push the boundaries, but they're still operating within systems that are not, and it's it's challenging. Anything else to add from either of you before we like do our little like where can we find everyone like any final thoughts? I think I would definitely add um, just really having like a checkpoint for people and realizing why they do the type of work. I often feel similar to Soleil in organizational work because I was taught that when you're doing nonprofit work, you're supposed to work, work yourself out of a job. You're supposed to do the work until the problem no longer exists. And there are some organizations that have been around far too long who do not do the work. Um, and so therefore, although they are like a well-known um, family brand, <laughs> uh, 
they don't actually do the work that needs to be done in this moment or they have been around so long that they're very stuck in their ways and that's not how people need support and not how people are showing up in in these times so I think that part of it is like really having a reflection and really taking the time to be self-aware of why you're doing this work and who are you trying to serve who are you trying to support who are you trying to elevate who are you trying to live lift up because we all recognize that there is oppressive movements regardless of what industry you're in um and checking the privilege of like how you show up in those spaces are super super important to the work that we're doing and so even for myself I'm not I don't categorize myself as privileged but I have a home that I can I'm that I'm in temporarily you know there is something to eat in my my refrigerator like I have some sort of support and for somebody who does not have those things I would be perceived as privileged so even when I'm engaging with community even though it's the community that I come from I have to recognize how I show up even though I have all the identities of being marginalized there are some people who have um more intense experiences of marginalization than I do so being a community organizer being an activist being like any of the things that have led me through this movement I still have to ask my myself why do I do this work why do I show up who am I trying to serve and really having those checkpoints because it's very vital to my perception of how I show up and how I offer resources and who do I gravitate towards and how do I assist um, and so I think that's the same with anybody who is a service-based pro- like provider. Like, why are you doing this work? Um, and if it's to make sustainable change, then this program is for sustainable change. Whether you believe the content, whether you believe sex workers have autonomy, what whatever your preconceived notion is, taking the certification really helps you understand the perspective of, of various of experiences because I'm sure that I'm not the only person who does survival-based sex work. And I'm sure that people have different experiences, whether it be criminalization, whether it be survival-based sex work, whether it be somebody who is choosing this because they are disabled and they can't do other types of work. There's a lot of reasons why. Um, and I'd be curious as somebody who would be in a mental um, health profession as to why. Um, and I think a lot of people become therapists because they want to answer the question of why. So if you want to answer the question of why, then take the certification. So I, think I love that's- that. Thanks, John. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and I would, I would say, I would say, you know, I could just echo a similar response, which is like, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I, I ask therapists the why as well. You know, why are you doing this work? Why are you, why are you trying to um, be in a profession where you know you're ideally a lot of folks healing your own shit, um, and then. Um, not making space for someone else to do the same on the journey with you. And it's like the, the power and the identity associated with therapists to that role um, oftentimes is like what they, that they continue to reinforce in their engagement with clients. It's that I'm important, I'm wanted, I'm needed, I'm valuable, I'm, I'm doing something that's worthy to the world. And, um, and that's a valid, a valid place to be in, in work and a valid relationship to work. And so use the certification as an opportunity to do even better with that, right? So you really want to be a, a tool, a resource for the world. I mean, therapists have a lot of vital skills that could be really useful to a sex worker and to someone who doesn't have the same capacity to access the resource, the knowledge, the tools. Um, and we have to get over ourselves and over our sense of um, who we are, what it means to be in the work that we're doing, 
um, to be able to be on the level with somebody who's very different than we are um, and has a different relationship to work than we do um, because they didn't go through college and programming um, does not mean that their work is not important, does not mean that their work is not valuable to them, does not mean that their work is not a vital part of identity and a vital part of a conversation that they want to be having with you. Um, and they want you to be able to be, uh, I, I think of this, this phrasing a lot, you know, unconditional positive regard, regardless of what somebody says, that you have unconditional positive regard for them and that you are just curious and open and and you don't need to know everything, but you need to be able to not be an asshole and, and we can we can all do better. Thank you both so much. This was really great. Where can, how do people support the Equitable Care Certification and where do people support you, find you, share if they want to learn more, like tell me about that. Jenna, yeah. do you want to go? Yes. So um, I'm sure Shalee was going to show you the you know, the web address because I don't have it. I'm just, uh -huh. I'm just, yeah, I have it. <laughs> I'm just here. Um, no. So uh, they can find me on most things as Poetic Glitterheart. Um, I write books. I'm a poet. Mm. I'm a um, and so I also have TikToks. I have um, my website is mm. I am Torres, where they can see all of the things that I've done related to sex work um, policy. Um, I was in New York Times Magazine um, and talking about like our experiences as people who do this movement and the differences between um, human trafficking and survival-based sex work. Um, and yeah, so I do more poetry than uh, organizing these days, but my poetry is organizing. So they can find me on most yeah. things um, in that way. And yeah. Thanks so I much. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, and you can find the Equitable Care Certification at equitablecarecertification.com. And we are taking new registrations for our cohort in October. So please register. We give discounts for group registrations if you want to bring your whole team. And we're also open to doing individual um, consulting or one-off courses. So feel free to reach out to me. Um, and my, I am Cyborg Dreams, C-Y-B-O-R-G. D-R-E-A-M-Z, it's hard to spell out loud, um, Cyborg Dreams on all of the social media. Um, and then Raquel Savage is the other co-founder. Um, so you can also reach out to either of us. And Raquel Savage also has other content that you can find, um, including her podcast. Um, thank you for this time, Sarah. Really appreciate being here in this conversation. And thanks, Jenna, for joining us again. I'm so excited. <laughs> and anyone... Um... If they buy like the intro to sex worker, uh, intro to working with sex workers 101 course or donate directly on the ECC, it all goes, it's all helping. Yes. Correct? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, thanks for the reminder. So, yeah, you can also buy our one off course. You can, um, and, and watch that. You can donate to us. Um, please share with your networks if you know a good therapist community that would be down. Um, please I, give them my information and I'll come and talk to them. Um, you know, we will fly out and do in person things, whatever we need to to try to like, uh, expand this reach. So thank you all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Psych in the City. Thank you to Soleil and Jenna for an incredible episode. Head to equitablecarecert.com, equitablecarecert.com to donate, support, learn more about the Equitable Care Certification Program. It's incredible work and learning about it is just so great. Spread the, spread the news, spread it wide and support 
all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode and information and where to find everyone is in the show notes. Thanks for listening.